For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, Bodhisattvas, Uh, on Zoom and in the room. Um, So uh, I realized a few days ago, when I was writing this talk, that uh, by some kind of serendipity, I was scheduled to do a talk on uh, the poet Gary Snyder's 93rd birthday. So I'm going to use a lot of quotes from him tonight as a kind of a tribute. Um, his, he has helped form my worldview in lots of important ways, and I deeply appreciate him. And also, his words are uh, pretty suitable for my topic. He says, uh, oh my gosh, I'm huge over there. <laughs> he says, uh, nature is not a place to visit. It is home. So uh, I had as my email signature for, for many years a quote from his book, Practice of the Wild. It said, uh, practically speaking, a life that is vowed to simplicity, appropriate boldness, good humor, gratitude, unstinting work and play, and lots of walking brings us close to the actual existing world and its wholeness. I like that he uses the word bow. You know, it's, it indicates a, a, a strong intention and some effort. And I really like that he's interested in being close to the actual existing world and its wholeness, which is what I want to try to talk about tonight. Um, Many of you are in the middle of the practice commitment period, and you're immersed in uh, the Mamala Kirti Sutra and fulfilling the commitments that you made when you signed up. Thank you very much. I have benefited greatly from participating from the sidelines, listening to the wonderful talks. And I'm really grateful for the energy that your effort is uh, generating in our Sangha. But I'm not formally participating uh, in the same way this year. I have done uh, practice commitment periods in the past and, and greatly appreciated uh, sort of a structure for deepening practice. But this year, when Tygen asked me about my plans, I told him um, I felt called to do something else. And actually, what I told him was that I was completely absorbed in studying birds and you're allowed to laugh, uh, and that the months of April and May are kind of the high holidays of birding, and spring migration is underway, and it's a spectacle, singing, and they're wearing the breeding plumage, and I just couldn't imagine focusing on something else, so I told Tiger that this year, I really wanted to devote myself um, to paying attention to birds in spring, and uh, that didn't seem to fit in. It's a plan for the practice period, and in true Tygen 
form, he didn't object. <laughs> Surprised me a little. He told me that was fine and uh, that I should do a Dharma talk about it. So that's what I'm doing tonight. That's my introduction. And, uh, and to tell the truth, I wasn't really sure about this choice. I, mean, I thought it was just being lazy. Um, you know, sometimes it's really good to do things that you don't feel like doing. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I didn't want to feel like I was just skipping the practice period. So I, I wanted to do something parallel and really dedicate myself to this practice. So, so far, we're not done yet, but so far, I feel like I have put in a lot of effort and I have not felt lazy and I've learned a lot and I'm still pretty excited. So, I'm going to start with a quote from Suzuki Roshi, who, this is a little bit of a justification from the string, from the mainstream of the song. Uh, his famous comment um, when he was asked about his thoughts about consciousness, he said, I don't know anything about consciousness. I just try to teach my students how to hear the birds sing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been trying to do, literally. <laughs> so um, I think many of you know that um, I do spend a lot of time outdoors, and I've even made a career of it, actually. And uh, I have learned the names and the biology and ecology of a lot of plants and animals. And um, people ask me those names when I'm walking with them. And, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, Gary Snyder, who we're going to quote a lot today, says, it's good etiquette to learn the names of our neighbors of all species. But um, knowing the names is, is only one part of it, and it's maybe not the most important part if we, if we want to be intimate um, with the rest of nature. So just to state the obvious, um, walking silently in nature and just paying attention to your senses is deeply relaxing and it has a lot in common with zazen because you settle. And um, some people describe this as losing the feeling of self. It's, it's really not easy to explain in words. So for me, it feels less like losing the feeling of self than gaining a more accurate feeling of self. The self that's one small living being among so many other living beings that we're sharing the same time and place with. So it's not being in nature or watching birds as an observer, but connecting in some basic way, joining joining nature. So Snyder described this much better than I can. He wrote, to see a wren in a bush call it Wren, and go on walking is to have self-importantly seen nothing. To see a bird and stop, watch, 
feel, forget yourself for a moment, be in the bushy shadows, maybe then feel Ren, that is to have joined in a larger moment with the world. So the first question in the practice commitment period application form is about intention. And I didn't state an intention to myself or to Tigan when I started this spring project. But in retrospect, if I were filling in the form now, I might say my intention is to get better at feeling rim <laughs> uh, or warbler or green heron or maybe beaver or burrow tree. So here's here's so Snyder wrote a lot of poems about birds. Here's one called How to Know Birds. The place you're in, the time of year, how they move and where in the meadows, brush, forest, rocks, reeds. Are they hanging out alone or in a group? or little groups, size, speed, sorts of flight, quirks, tail flicks, wing shakes, bobbing. Can you see what they're eating? Calls and songs. Finally, if you get a chance, can you see their colors, details of plumage, lines, dots, bars, that will tell you the details you need to come up with a name. But you already know this bird. <laughs> so in this poem, the name comes last after so many things. It's actually an entire ornithology class in 17 lines. <laughs> so the place. You, know, you wouldn't find a spoonbill on a Chicago beach. The time of year, you wouldn't find a snowy owl in July or a hummingbird in January. The habitat. Different kind of blackbird you're going to find in the woods than you would find in the city than you would find in the, on a beach dune. And if you follow the poem's advice, you'll spend a lot of time looking at every bird and getting to know its ways. It's quirks. I love that. Um, I've also found that when I'm uh, looking at a bird, um, I can see how hard it's working to make a living and to raise a family. And I'm just filled with respect for their immense effort. Most of the time, birds are looking for food. Um, finding food is an endless pursuit, whether it's insects or seeds or fish or fruit. And it's especially a lot of work when they're feeding babies. Um, in springtime, we can see that birds are carrying sticks or grass or mud when it came in. Bogetsu uh, uh, showed me a robin's nest on her front porch. If we see them carrying it and we watch where they go, then we can see where they're building nice. And later, we can go back and watch them, watch the babies. Finding a mate can be really difficult. Uh, right now, there's a little male piping plover. Uh, his name is Imani. Uh, he's at Montrose Beach. He's the son of the famous Monty and Rose, those world-famous piping plovers that raised three uh, clutches of uh, 
chicks on that busy beach and they're no longer alive. But Imani came back last year and he came back this year. Last year, he stayed for six weeks and no mate showed up. This year, he's been there for several weeks and so far, no luck. Um, He's hanging around defending the territory. But when a bird's endangered, there just aren't a lot of, you know, potential... uh, eligible candidates so um, migration is an immense amount of work I, I used to have a simplistic uh, idea of bird migration I thought that uh, birds pick up and leave in the fall when it gets cold and then they return in the spring when it warms up again <clears throat> it's way more interesting than that so we live in the lower Great Lakes where we're on a flyway route. It's like an invisible road uh, in the sky. And we have the privilege here, if we pay attention, uh, of seeing hundreds of species of birds moving across the globe. So some of them, uh, like egrets and orioles, arrive here in spring after spending the winter somewhere south. So they come here to nest, and then they're going to leave after they raise their babies. Some birds, like uh, juncos and uh, tree sparrows, um, are leaving now. They're going north to have their babies up in the north woods. They, they spent their winter here eating seeds. Some birds, like the yellow-bellied sapsuckers we saw in our last haiku walk, I think there's a couple people here that want to go, they're just passing through. They don't stay here much at all. They, they're in the south in the winter in their nest and something. They're just on their way. They stop by to kind of refuel. And uh, some birds stay here all year and they don't migrate at all, like goldfinches and crows and um, mallards. So that's a simplified version of this amazing phenomenon. And now I'm going to read you another Gary Snyder poem called Migration of Birds. (laughs) It started just now with a hummingbird hovering over the porch two yards away, then gone. It stopped me studying. I saw the redwood posts leaning in clawed ground, tangled in a bush of yellow flowers higher than my head, through which we push every time we come inside. The shadow network of the sunshine through its vines. White-crowned sparrows make tremendous singings in the trees. The rooster down the valley crows and crows. Jack Kerouac outside behind my back reads the Diamond Sutra in the sun. (laughs) Yesterday, I read Migration of Birds, the Golden Plover and the Arctic Tern. Today, that big abstraction is at our door. For juncos and the robins all have left. Broody scrabblers pick up bits of string. And in this hazy day of April summer heat, cross the hill, The seabirds chase spring north along the coast, nesting in Alaska in six weeks. I love this line. Today, that big abstraction's at our door. And that's kind of what I'm experiencing. So 
ideas um, are living and breathing right in front of us. Oops, too many pages. So I had this lovely um, bird migration experience about a month ago, middle of April. I was standing on the beach in Wilmette um, early in the morning, watching for birds that might be coming in off the lake because birds migrate along the lake at night. And then in the morning, it's a good time to see them as they land. Uh, they, they come in and land. So I was chatting with this boy, high school student. He said he was a junior in high school. His name was Owen. And he lived nearby. And every morning he would come down to look at the birds. And uh, he was very knowledgeable and passionate. And he told me about all the birds he had seen. And as we were talking, a little bird came off the lake and landed on his leg. <laughs> and um, it was wet and it was kind of disheveled. Well, we figured out it was a yellow rump warbler. Anyway, it just landed on his leg and it didn't move. So he's a kid, high school guy, so he had his phone there. So he took pictures of it. And uh, then he started looking at it kind of closely. And he said, he fell asleep. <laughs> the bird fell asleep. He must have used up all his energy. Owens. <laughs> so I, I was just transfixed. And he, Owen just stood there for minutes. It was, I don't know how long it was because, you know, it was kind of this magical moment where you're really not... Time is uh, distorted, confused. But Owen didn't seem even slightly impatient. And he just stood there. And um, finally, this little bird um, kind of roused itself and flew off to, there was a little patch of trees uh, nearby. And uh, Owen sort of mumbled after it. And I just was waiting. But Ten minutes later, he came back and he said uh, that the bird was fine. It was it was feeding and it was it was fine. Um, and I just had this um, deep realization of the effort that that bird had made that it just landed and fell instantly. <laughs> uh, and I also had a really deep appreciation for this young man who was. Um, just such a um, kind and caring person. So, I mean, this, well, there's a scientist, I don't remember his name, I tried to find him, I couldn't find him. He said, bird migration is not like running a marathon. It's more like a trip to the moon. So it does, it gives you the scale of what um, these, these creatures do. So I just got back from uh, a four-day trip to the Shawnee National Forest, which is uh, about six hours south of here, straight down I-57. It's huge. It's like 300,000 acres. It's quite wonderful. And uh, it was a kind of a birding session. I mean, I was the only um, Zen person there, but that's the way I was thinking of it. Uh, everybody started at 5.30 at the van, which means you got up at 4.30, and then we birded all day long, and, and after dinner, and we ate breakfast in the van. Uh, you know, after dinner, we'd go through 
a review of everything we had seen that day. And so we had 11 people, and a couple of people were experts, and a couple of people were kind of newbies, but most of us were like me, kind of in between. And uh, on the drive down, one of the experts, his name was Adam, said, well, let's get off the highway here. So we're just north of Champaign. And uh, okay. Uh, so we drove around. The farm fields hadn't been planted yet. They were basically bare. And uh, we didn't quite know why we were driving around because there were obviously no birds there. And then uh, he pulled the van over and uh, pulled out his telescope and aimed it at this empty field. And he announced, American Golden Plover. That's one of the birds that Gary Sanger mentioned. Uh, and uh, we all pointed our binoculars in that direction. And then we saw that the field was like jiggling, flowing. There were birds everywhere. They were on the ground feeding on insects in the soil, which you know hadn't been planted yet. And then we looked a little closer all around us. We realized there were thousands of them. And they're not teeny like the bird on Owen's pants. They were, these are like, they have a two foot wingspan and they're about, you know, 12 inches long and they're kind of plump. They're plovers, so they're kind of round like chickens, you know. So they spend the winter in uh, South America and then they breed in the Arctic tundra. And Adam, who... Uh, was probably like Owen when he was that age, uh, said that uh, the large, a really large percentage of all the world's American golden plovers stop by central Illinois every spring and fall. I had no idea. So it would have been so easy to, to drive past the spectacle and not even notice it because uh, we humans aren't the most alert species sometimes. <laughs> anyway, I assume the, the farmers are familiar with the plovers, but I don't really know. So anyway, on our trip, on the first day, we saw and heard about 120 different species of birds. Some of them were feeding babies, some of them were starting to build nests, and some of them were, you know, just stopping over. I love nature in Chicago, but it was so wonderful to be in a place that was very few people and just a large landscape of habitat for, for other creatures. We, we saw a bobcat cross the road and cheered. <laughs> we saw, you know, snakes and turtles and armadillos and so forth. Armadillos? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, on our second day, we had rain and cold weather and some other challenges. We went to this place that I had always heard of and always wanted to go called Snake Road, which is a road that they close every spring because it's a place where snakes cross and they sun and it used to kill a lot of snakes. So they close it for a couple of months every spring, but it was too cold and we saw zero snakes. And uh, two people in our group got sick and then we started worrying about COVID. And one person just talked and talked and talked and got on my nerves. So it was like every session I've ever been to, it was not entirely blissful, but um, I was really glad I did it. So um, at home, I've been walking outdoors pretty much every day. I live near the river and um, 
One day I saw a very large beaver gnawing on a full-size tree in broad daylight, kind of shamelessly. It hadn't read the book that said they're nocturnal. <laughs> um, and uh, one day I saw a mink swimming. This morning I was at Montrose Sanctuary, and uh, it was really cold and drizzly, and there weren't any people, which is always nice because often too crowded. But the birds still had to eat, so they were going about their business. The bank swallows were digging holes in the sandbank, and the thrushers and thrashers and towies and sparrows were, you know, turning over the dried leaves. And I saw a female red-winged blackbird pick up a Kleenex that someone had, you know, it was basically litter, and then she carried it to her nest and stuffed it in, like, insulation. I know, it was, it was really bustling and fun. So, I'm going to end with Dogen, Dogen, the 13th century founder of our lineage. Um, the most familiar Dogen teaching, I'm sure you've all heard it many times from the Genjo Koan, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by 10,000 things. When enlightened by 10,000 things, the body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. So I sometimes think I didn't really understand this, and sometimes not at all. But as I was writing this talk, I made a connection that gave me a kind of a jolt. I've never really thought too much about the 10,000 things. I mean, I thought it's like a big number to say it's a lot of things. Uh, but then I remembered there are about 10,000 species of birds in this world. So... It might be a coincidence, but now I feel like I'm focused on these particular 10,000 things and uh, enjoying my time with them. So I'm very happy to uh, hear your thoughts and answer questions or anything else. And I hope you're all enjoying spring as much as I am, even though it's been a pretty cool spring here. So, Kyoshin, uh, this is Taigen. Hi. Um, thank you so much for this talk. And I just want to mention that Dongshan, the founder of our lineage in China in the uh, 800s, um, who wrote the song of the Joel Mayer Samadhi that we uh, sometimes chant, Dongshan advised his students to follow the bird's path. And he, ta he talked about the bird's path as, uh, as the way of Zen practice. There's a, I have, there's a lot I could say. There, there's a whole chapter on the bird's path in my book about Dongshan, just this is it. But anyway, I just wanted to say that and thank you for uh, helping us feel and see and be with the bird's path. Thank you. Yes, that's a wonderful chapter. I, I really um, 
thought about quoting it, but you can only quote so many people. And since it was Snyder's birthday, <laughs> and your birthday, we'll quote your <laughs> Thank you for the Gary Snyder, too. 93. How about that? <laughs> He's probably still chopping wood. He did. He did. Yeah, he had one of those wonderful lives. When he when he died, I didn't feel sad. I felt so happy that he had had such a wonderful life. You know that he had lived so beautifully. I think I'll feel the same way about Gary Snyder when his time comes. I didn't hear who died. I did not hear who died. Oh, we were talking. Uh, I'm sorry. Eve mentioned Pete Seeger. Oh. It, it, it's not a recent <laughs> loss. <laughs> I guess. What I guess when people speak, they need to speak louder because uh, that was my Asian. Yes, I was wondering if you learned anything more about how birds know where to go. Well, if I learned anything more, you mean when they migrate? Yeah. Well, there's a huge amount of science um, that has been done and is being done and will be done. And it's certainly not completely understood. Um, but I, I just want to say there's a lot of ways to be with birds. And science is one of them. And that's really interesting. Um, and it's it's sort of not what I'm the way I'm thinking about it right now. I mean, it's I'm, it's kind of personal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, um, I'm trying to rec- I'm trying to think of what to recommend for people if they're interested in that because it is endlessly interesting. There's tons of more, you know, you can read journals with, you know, the kind of charts that make your eyeballs spin around of data and so forth. But uh, one way birds are being studied, so like Monty and Rose, so these two little piping plovers, tiny little birds that um, I mentioned before that that successfully nest on Montrose Beach, one of the busiest beaches in the world, I suppose. Monty wintered in Texas and Rose wintered in Florida. And then they would come back to Chicago uh, in May and arrive within a couple days of each other. And we know that because they were banded and uh, they were color banded and you don't need to catch them to see the vans. You can look at your, with your binoculars or a telescope and see. And they were seen on their wintering grounds and see, you know. No, no one knows why or how that happened that they wintered separately. They probably came from different families that had that pattern. Or how they knew how to get back to the same beach. <laughs> One year on the exact same day. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there, there are endless stories like that that are um, puzzling and wonderful and um, 
being thought about by many people, and there are endless theories, but no one really knows. But it's fun to think about. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea they were had that kind of arrangement. <laughs> yeah, separate vacations. <laughs> It's good for their marriage. <laughs> how are they with each other when they first reconnect? So that, that I do know because yeah. I did spend, uh, I was one of the monitors. There are 100 people every summer signed up to be monitors. You would sign up for two-hour um, shifts because we were trying to be sure they were okay. You, you know, crazy things happen, like dogs get on the beach and so forth. So... They just immediately um, recognized each other, and um, they didn't seem to take them long to get into the routine that they do, which is starting, they don't build nests, they make a little scrape in the sand, just a little indentation, they'll make several of them, and he will make it, she will inspect it and see if she likes it and usually wait until it makes a dozen or so before she says, you know, there's a whole lot of ritual with that. But yeah, it wasn't like they had to um, get to, I mean, they knew each other. Yeah, they, they comfortably, like, I guess, started this, like, nesting behavior yeah. with each other. They're they like, didn't have a lot of time, you know, it's sort of has to get done pretty fast because they have to get it all done and get out of there and get back by the end of the summer. So there's not a lot of time for dating or <laughs> going out to dinner. <laughs> Court, courting. Um, Tinder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it really, the question doesn't have any... Um, it's probably different for different birds, you know. But there's one theory that it's magnetic fields, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of, there's a lot of theories that has to do with magnetic fields, that it has to do with stars, that it has to do with, I mean, some of these migration patterns are kind of crazy, and they think they might have been formed when, you know, the, the, continents were different and or you know there were different paths of rivers and so forth and the birds stayed on those old paths you know when it's but it's some of it is speculation and it's informed speculation <laughs> uh, I see Ken has his hand up and then also Bryant so Ken first Ken you are muted you're muted Ken Is that better? Yes. Good? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, there is some popular and scientific speculation that the ancestors of birds were the dinosaurs, you know, whether it's in the movie, this kind of thing. Does that add a different dimension to the general appreciation of, of birds as they are today? Yeah, I think it's pretty established that they come from dinosaurs. Uh, that's that's not speculation. Um, um, I mean, I'm interested in dinosaurs, but I 
don't have a way to relate to them. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of an aspect of deep time, you know, that uh, <laughs> related to birds. Yeah, I mean, it's all we're all. I mean, we're all one thing, right? So it's just <laughs> a process of. Right. Okay. Well, good. Thank you. It's a process of transformation over a long period of time, right? I I used to work at the field museum, and I I'd walk in in the morning before there were any people there, and you know, I I would think about the dinosaurs in my relation to these ancient things, but you can't see them flying over Chicago. <laughs> right. 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 Thank you. I always seem to get really interested in dinosaurs. I never went through that stage. <laughs> I, would, I, 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 I still have some of my sons. <laughs> <laughs> Just to add, if I may, that that paleontologists now think that many dinosaurs had feathers. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's pretty solid evidence of that. And they certainly laid eggs. Uh, I think Brian also had his hand up. Brian. Hello, and thank you for uh, more illuminating knowledge about birds. I want to encourage everyone. Uh, I've been on many haiku walks with you, and I'm never, I never cease to be amazed at your encyclopedic knowledge. Uh, you know, when I, when I look at a bird, I see bird, <laughs> and yet you see like, you know the precise name of the of the little creature, and uh, your your knowledge always amazes me. Uh, so these haiku walks are are really uh, very illuminating. I encourage everyone to to try at least one. Um, and I guess my my own little uh, bird story uh, of amazement. I got a book here uh, about. Uh, science and some of the things we don't understand yet and it talks about the red knot which is a bird where the the little ones hatch in upper canada the females abandon the offspring in mid-july the adult males follow a few weeks later and then in august the little ones start out on their own the nine thousand mile journey down the entire longitude of the globe to Tierra del Fuego, almost to Antarctica, uh, without, I mean, without the adults. And it just always amazed me to no end. So that's just a comment. And Thank you. Red dots at Montrose Beach. Um, oh, really? They come through. On their way back? Uh, they come through, yes, on their way back. I mean, we don't see them much in the spring, but we do see them in the fall. And uh, so there's a there's a book called Moonbird about a particular red knot. It's a children's book. It's called Moonbird. It's this bird that they had banned, a red knot that they had banded. So this is a shorebird, pretty good-sized bird. And so they knew uh, he lived for over 20 years. And if you added up the miles that he had flown... Um, it it added up to a trip to the moon and halfway back. So his nickname was Moonbird. <laughs> the book, the children's book, was was Moonbird, and they 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 saw him both in um, Tierra del Fuego and up in the Antarctic. So yeah, 
pretty amazing. I recommend that book if you have kids or even if you don't have kids. Thank you. And uh, just to say, Bryant is one of our most prolific poets. We, we, when we take our walks, uh, everybody is invited to write poems and send them to me, and then I send them back out to everyone without anyone's name on it. Um, and so no one really knows that Bryant, <laughs> Bryant writes the most. <laughs> well. With the with the disclaimer that quantity isn't necessarily related to quality, but um, they're very they're very um, so and they're not about technical knowledge. They're about what you see and feel and notice as you're paying attention, which is really what it's about. Not so much the name or the um, yeah. There's a there's a Zen guy. Who, who has some renown, um, who has a book about using haiku uh, to, uh, as a practice for opening to the present moment. Um, and that's kind of what they always traditionally have been, you know, just, just no um, thematic material of, of teaching, but just kind of a, a, a word picture of the moment. And uh, but I find them just one. It's a wonderful way, and pretty easy once you get the technique to just get out of your mind and get right into the present moment of where you're at. It's uh, it's really enjoyable, and you always bring us. I've learned more about the natural areas of the Chicago land area than I ever knew before through your haiku walks. Uh, so uh, I'm a loyal follower. <laughs> All right. Someone else had their hand up, but I forgot who it was. Patrick, did you have your hand up? Oh, no, that's mine. That's I have mine. <laughs> oh, Hogetsu's right in front of me. So, you know, I really appreciate, uh, you know, your amplification of Gary Snyder's words of what, what happens when we don't name Mm-hmm. and categorize, but actually just observe and be intimate with whatever. You know, like it could be a bird, it could be uh, whatever is in our experience. And I just appreciate that so much. The myriad things are birds, the myriad things are curtains and wax walls, tiles, snakes, beavers, you know. The beaver, I like the beaver that didn't get the, the note about being nocturnal, you know, that, that you, when you become intimate, and this is, this is our, I was thinking about that in this room this morning, or this evening, of being intimate with each other, how we move around, how we uh, start to inhabit space, and it's a really great gift that you've given us with your connection to nature, so thank you very much, Kyoshin, for this teaching. Well, well, thank you, and uh, let me publicly thank you for the little intimate tour you gave me of your garden this evening when I arrived. It's such a beautiful little garden. If if people haven't um, spent a little time with it, it's uh, it's wonderful, and uh, that is certainly a practice to be gardening with these living things. Is certainly a 
good practice. And not just plants. You know, the garden has all yeah. different creatures in the soil and all different, you know, there's bunnies and rats and mm-hmm. pollinators. Pollinators like crazy. Yeah. I thought I saw a hummingbird moth, but I don't think they come this time of year. Uh, maybe it was an actual hummingbird. Yeah, they just got back. Yeah, they just got back. Yeah, I might have seen one. Cool. But so many creatures uh, just right here in in the building. You know, millipedes and (laughs) (laughs) Eve. Could you say more about you were saying that some of the birds fly at night and Yeah, a lot of migration happens at night. Why? Well, like, then no, what no. Do, they, do they like? Do they like come and have breakfast and then go to sleep, or what do they do? Well, first of all, I'll just say one really sad thing about that is why there's a lot of mortality around cities during migration because of the um, lights in cities, which confuses them, and then they end up. Dying because we have so much glass in our buildings and so forth, and it's uh, it's really pretty horrible. Um, so they fly at night. They don't all fly at night. Some there some there's some birds migrate in the daytime. Um, but I mean, I'm sure you've heard sandhill cranes flying over in the daytime. But anyway, um, sometimes they just fly day and night, day and night, day and night, and don't land. But when they do land, then they are stopping over and refueling, basically. So we're a big stopover place because they follow the lake, and then we do have habitat for them here. So, um, yeah, I don't know why they migrate at night. Maybe it's because of the stars. Thank you, everyone.